conviction without a solid doctrinal foundation is hubris. And a solid doctrinal foundation without convictions often leads to cowardice. We find Christians throughout the history of the church who have been men and women of solid faith, who have stood upon their convictions even in the face of cultures that were hostile to its claims. One such example is Athanasius. Athanasius has been described by the Orthodox Church in America in this way as it described his life in the context in which we find his greatest works. It says the Arian controversy, which was the teaching that Jesus was a created being, raged over decades, and because several Christian emperors in this period gave their support to the Arianizers, the defenders of the Nicene faith, that is, those who drafted the Nicene Creed, you might be familiar with it. It says, We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and of earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father. Through him all things were made. This Jesus who we are describing or who we find described in the Nicene Creed, those who defended it, we are told by the Orthodox Church in America, were greatly persecuted. Continuing on with our reading, it says, With imperial support, church councils were held to try to articulate the mystery of Christ's divinity and humanity, but all with varying degrees of Arian influence. That influence that Jesus was somehow a created being, which of course is not what Scripture teaches. It reads, St. Athanasius, who lived from approximately 298 to 373, attended the Nicene Council as a deacon of the church in Alexandria. Though only 27 years old, he was a leader at that council in promoting the crucial word homoousius as most fitting to affirm the truth that the Son of God has the same uncreated divine nature as God the Father. Athanasius became bishop of Alexandria in 328 upon the death of St. Alexander. As the anti-Nicene party, led by Bishop Eusebius of Nicomedia, gained strength, Bishop Athanasius was one of the first to be attacked through slander and intrigue. This group managed to get him exiled from his see in 335. Altogether, this fearless champion of Nicene Orthodoxy suffered exile five times for his valiant and eloquent defense of the Christian faith. Near the end of his life, his pastoral forgiving outreach to his former enemies greatly helped to bring Arianism to an end. For all this and more, he is revered in church tradition as St. Athanasius the Great. Today, I would like to talk with you about the Incarnation from the writings of this great giant in the history of Christianity, Athanasius, from his work on the Incarnation. This week's podcast is going to be a little bit different than most, because rather than sharing with you from an article or a headline or explaining even a text of scripture, today I'm going to share with you a reading from church history. This is chapters 2 and 3 from the work On the Incarnation by St. Athanasius. It reads, Because death and corruption were gaining ever firmer hold on them, the human race was in process of destruction, 
man who was created in God's image and in his possession of reason reflected the very word himself, was disappearing, and the work of God was being undone. The law of death, which followed them from the transgression, prevailed upon us, and from it there was no escape. The thing that was happening was, in truth, both, both monstrous and unfitting. It would, of course, have been unthinkable that God should go back upon his word, and that man, having transgressed, should not die. But it was equally monstrous that beings which once had shared the nature of the word should perish and turn back into non-existence through corruption. It was unworthy of the goodness of God that creatures made by him should be brought to nothing through the deceit wrought upon man by the devil. And it was supremely unfitting that the work of God in mankind should is disappear either through their own negligence or through the deceit of evil spirits. As then the creatures whom he had created reasonable, like the word, were in fact perishing, and such noble works were on the road to ruin. What then was God who good to do? Was he to let corruption and death have their way with them? In that case, what was the use of having made them in the beginning? Surely it would have been better never to have been created at all than having been created to be neglected and perished, and, besides that, such indifference to the ruin of his own work before his very eyes would argue not goodness in God but limitation, and that far more than if he had never created men at all. It was impossible, therefore, that God should leave man to be carried off by corruption, because it would be unfitting and unworthy of himself. Yet, true though this is, it is not the whole matter. As we have already noted, it was unthinkable that God, the Father of truth, should go back upon his word regarding death in order to ensure our continued existence. He could not falsify himself. What then was God to do? Was he to demand repentance from men for their transgression? You might say that that was worthy of God and argue further that, as though the transgression they became subject to corruption, so through repentance they might return to incorruption again. But repentance would not guard the divine consistency, for if death did not hold dominion over men, God would still remain untrue. Nor does repentance recall men from what is according to their nature, all that it does is to make them cease from sinning. Had it been a case of a tr trespass only, and not of a subsequent corruption, repentance would have been well enough. But when once transgression had begun, men came under the power of the corruption proper to their nature and were bereft of the grace which belonged to them as creatures in the image of God. No, repentance could not meet the case. What, or rather, who was it that was needed for such grace and such recall as we required? Who, save the word of God himself, who also in the beginning had made all things out of nothing? His part it was, and his alone, both to bring again the corruptible to incorruption, and to maintain to the Father his consistency of character with all. For he alone, being word of the Father and above all, was in consequence both able to recreate all and worthy to suffer on behalf of all and to be an ambassador for all with the Father. For this purpose, then, the incorporeal and incorruptible and immaterial word of God entered our world. In one sense, indeed, he was not far from it before, for no part of creation had ever been without him who, while ever abiding in union with the Father, yet fills all things that are. But now he entered the world in a new way, 
stooping to our level in his love and self-revealing to us. He saw the reasonable race, the race of men that, like himself, expressed the Father's mind, wasting out of existence and death reigning over all in corruption. He saw that corruption held us all the closer because it was the penalty for the transgression. He saw, too, how unthinkable it would be for the law to be repealed until it was fulfilled. He saw how unseemly it was that the very things of which he himself was the artificer should be disappearing. He saw how the surpassing wickedness of men was mounting up against them. He saw also their universal liability to death. All this he saw, and pitying our race, moved with compassion for our limitation, unable to endure that death should have the mastery, rather than that his creature should perish, and the work of his Father for us men come to naught. He took to himself a body, a human body, even as our own. Nor did he will merely to become embodied or merely to appear, had that been so. He could have revealed his divine majesty in some other and better way. No, he took our body, and not only so, but he took it directly from a spotless, stainless virgin, without the agency of human father, a pure body, untainted by intercourse with man. He, the Mighty One, the Artificer of all, Himself prepared this body in the Virgin as a temple for Himself and took it for His very own as the instrument through which He was known and in which He dwelt. Thus taking a body like our own, because all our bodies were liable to the corruption of death, He surrendered His body to death instead of all and offered it to the Father. This He did out of sheer love for us, so that in His death, all might die, and the law of death thereby be abolished, because, having fulfilled in his body that for which it was appointed, it was therefore and thereafter voided of its power for men. This he did, that he might turn again to incorruption men who had turned back to corruption, and make them alive through death by the appropriation of his body, and by the grace of his resurrection." Thus he would make death to disappear from them as utterly as straw from fire. The word perceived that corruption could not get, be got rid of otherwise than through death. Yet he himself, as the word, being immortal, and the father's son, was such as could not die. For this reason, therefore, he assumed a body capable of death, in order that it, through belonging to the word, who is above all, might become in dying a sufficient exchange for all, and itself remaining incorruptible through his indwelling, might thereafter put an end to corruption for all others as well, by the grace of the resurrection. It was by surrendering to death the body which he had taken, as an offering and sacrifice free from every stain, that he forthwith abolished death for his human brethren by the offering of the equivalent. For naturally, since the word of God was above all, when he offered his own temple and bodily instrument as a substitute for the life of all, he fulfilled in death all that was required. Naturally also, through this union of the immortal Son of God with our human nature, all men were clothed with incorruption in the promise of the resurrection. For the solidarity of mankind is such that, by virtue of the words indwelling in a single human body, the corruption which goes with death has lost its power over all. 
You know how it is when some great king enters a large city and dwells in one of its houses. Because of his dwelling in that single house, the whole city is honored, and enemies and robbers cease to molest it. Even so, it is with the king of all. He has come into our country and dwelt in one body amidst, amidst the many, and in consequence the designs of the enemy against mankind have been foiled, and the corruption of death which formerly held them in its power has simply ceased to be. For the human race would have perished utterly had not the Lord and Savior of all, the Son of God, come among us to put an end to death. This great work was, indeed, supremely worthy of the goodness of God, a king who has founded a city so far from neglecting it when through the carelessness of the inhabitants it is attacked by robbers, avenges it, and saves it from destruction, having regard rather to his own honor than to people's neglect. Much more than the word of the all-good Father was not unmindful of the human race that he had called to be. But rather, by the offering of his own body, he abolished the death which they had incurred and corrected their neglect by his own teaching. Thus, by his own power, he restored the whole nature of man. The Savior's own inspired disciples assured us of this. We read in one place, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that, if one died on behalf of all, then all died. And he died for all, that we should no longer live unto ourselves, but unto him who died and rose again from the dead, even our Lord Jesus Christ. And again another says, But we behold him who hath been made a little lower than the angels, even Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he should taste of death on behalf of every man. The same writer goes on to point our are why it was necessary for God the Word and none other to become man. For it became Him for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory and to make author of their salvation perfect through suffering. He means that the rescue of mankind from corruption was the proper part only of Him who made them in the beginning. He points out also that the Word assumed a human body, expressly in order that he might offer it in sacrifice for other like bodies. Since then, the children are sharers in flesh and blood. He also himself assumed the same, in order that through death he might bring to naught him that hath the power of death, that is to say the devil, and might rescue those who all their lives were enslaved by the fear of death. For by the sacrifice of his own body he did two things— he put an end to the law of death, which barred our way, and he made a new beginning of life for us by giving us the hope of resurrection. By man, death has gained its power over men. By the word made man, death has been destroyed and life raised up anew. That is what Paul says, that true servant of Christ, when he wrote, For since by man came death. By man came also the resurrection of the dead. Just as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. And so forth. Now therefore, when we die, we no longer do so as men condemned to death, but as those who are even now in process of rising, we await the general resurrection of all, which in its own times he shall show, even God who wrought it and bestowed it upon us. This, then, is the first cause of the Savior's becoming man, 
There are, however, other things which show how wholly fitting is his blessed presence in our midst, and these we must now go on to consider. The third chapter, which is titled The Divine Dilemma and Its Solution in the Incarnation, continued. It reads, When God the Almighty was making mankind through his own word, he perceived that they, owing to the limitation of their nature, could not of themselves have any knowledge of their artificer, the incorporeal, the uncreated. He took pity on them, therefore, and did not leave them destitute of the knowledge of himself, lest their very existence should prove purposeless. For of what use is existence to the creature if it cannot know its maker? How could men be reasonable beings if they had no knowledge of the word and reason of the Father, through whom they had received their being? They would be no better than the beasts, had they no knowledge save of earthly things. And why should God have made them at all if he had not intended them to know him? But in fact, the good God has given them a share in his own image, that is, in our Lord Jesus Christ, and has made even themselves after the same image and likeness. Why? Simply in order that through this gift of God likeness in themselves, they may be able to perceive the image absolute, that is capitalized, by the way, referencing Jesus, that is the word himself, and through him to apprehend the Father, which knowledge of their maker is for men the only happy and blessed life. But as we have already seen, men, foolish as they are, thought little of the grace they had received and turned away from God. They defiled their own soul so completely that they not only lost their apprehension of God, but invented for themselves other gods of various kinds. They fashioned idols for themselves in place of the truth and reverence things that are not, rather than God who is. As St. Paul says, worshiping the creature rather than the created, the, rather than the creator. Moreover, and much worse, they transfer the honor which is due to God to material objects, such as wood and stone, and also to man. And further, even than that, they went, as we said in our former book. Indeed, so impious were they that they worshipped evil spirits as God in, in satisfaction of their lusts. They sacrificed brute beasts and in and immolated men as the just due of these deities, thereby bringing themselves more and more under their insane control. Magic arts were taught among them. Oracles in sundry places led men astray, and the cause of everything in human life was traced to the stars as though nothing existed that which could be seen. In a word, impiety and lawlessness were everywhere, and neither God nor his word was known. Yet he had not hidden himself from the sight of men, nor given the knowledge of himself in one way only, but rather he had unfolded it in many forms and by many ways. God knew the limitation of mankind, you see. And though the grace of being made in his image was sufficient to give them knowledge of the word and through him of the Father as a safeguard against their neglect of this grace, he provided the works of creation also as a means by which the Maker might be known. Nor was this all. Man's neglect of the indwelling grace tends ever to increase, and against this further frailty also God made provision by giving them a law, and by sending prophets, men whom they knew, 
Thus, if they were tardy in looking up to heaven, they might still gain knowledge of their Maker from those close at hand. For men can learn directly about higher things from other men. Three ways thus lay open to them by which they might obtain the knowledge of God. They could look up into the immensity of heaven, and by pondering the harmony of creation come to know its ruler, the word of the Father, whose all-ruling providence makes known the Father to all. Or, if this was beyond them, they could converse with holy men, and through them learn to know of God, the artificer of all things, the Father of Christ, and to recognize the worship of idols as the negation of the truth and full of impiety." Or else, in the third place, they could cease from lukewarmness and lead a good life merely by knowing the law. For the law was not given only for the Jews, nor was it solely for their sakes that God sent the prophets. Though it was to the Jews that they were sent, and by the Jews that they were persecuted. The law and the prophets were a sacred school of the knowledge of God and the conduct of the spiritual life for the whole world. So great indeed were the goodness and the love of God. Yet man, bowed down by the pleasures of the moment and by the frauds and illusions of evil spirits, did not lift up their heads towards the truth. So burdened were they with their wickedness that they seemed rather to be brute beasts than reasonable men, reflecting the very likeness of the word. What was God to do in the face of this dehumanizing of mankind, this universal hiding of the knowledge of himself by the wiles of evil spirits? Was he to keep silence before so great a wrong and let men go on being thus deceived and kept in ignorance of himself? If so, what was the use of having made them in his own image originally? It would surely have been better for them always to have been brutes rather than to revert to that condition when once they had shared the nature of the word. Again, things being as they were, what was the use of their ever having had the knowledge of God? Surely it would have been better for God never to have bestowed it than that men should subsequently be found unworthy to receive it. Similarly, what possible profit could it be to God himself who made men if when made they did not worship him but regarded others as their makers? This would be tantamount to having, to his having made them for others and not for himself. Even an earthly king, though he is only a man, does not allow lands that he has colonized to pass into other hands or to desert to other rulers, but sends letters and friends and even visits them himself to recall them to their allegiance rather than allow his works to be undone. How much more, then, will God be patient and painstaking with his creatures that they be not led astray from him to the service of those that are not, and that all the more because such error means for them sheer ruin, and because it is not right that those who had once shared his image should be destroyed. What then was God to do? What else could he possibly do, being God, but renew his image in mankind, so that through it men might once more come to know him? And how could this be done save by the coming of the very image himself, our Savior, Jesus Christ? Men could not have it, for they are only made after the image. Nor could angels have done it, for they are not the images of God. The word of God came in his own person because it was he alone, the image of the Father, who could recreate man made after the image. 
In order to effect this recreation, however, he had first to do away with the death and corruption. Therefore, he assumed a human body in order that in it death might be once and for all destroyed, and that men might be renewed according to the image. The image of the Father only was sufficient for this need. Here is an illustration to prove it. You know what happens when a portrait that has been painted on a panel becomes obliterated through external stains. The artist does not throw away the panel, but the subject of the portrait has to come and sit for it again, and then the likeness is redrawn on the same material. Even so was it the all-holy Son of God. He, the image of the Father, came and dwelt in our midst in order that he might renew mankind, made after himself, and seek out his lost sheep, even as he says in the Gospel. I came to seek and save that which was lost. This also explains his saying to the Jews, except a man be born anew. A order that eclipsing by his works, all other human deeds might recall men from all the paths of error to know the Father. As he says himself, I came to seek and save that which was lost. When then the minds of men had fallen finally to the level of sensible things, the word submitted to appear in a body in order that he, as man, might center their senses on himself and convince them through his human acts that he himself is not man only, but also God, the word and wisdom of the true God. This is what Paul wants to tell us when he says that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be strong and apprehend with all the saints what is the length and breadth and height and depth and to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge, so that ye may be filled unto all the fullness of God. The self-revealing of the word is in every dimension above, in creation, below, in the incarnation, in the depth, in Hades, in the breadth, throughout the world. All things have been filled with the knowledge of God. For this reason he did not offer the sacrifice on behalf of all immediately he came. For if he had surrendered his body to death and then raised it again at once, he would have ceased to be an object of our senses. Instead of that, he stayed in his body and let himself be seen in it, showing acts and giving signs which showed him to not only be man but also God the Word. There were thus two things which the Savior did for us by becoming man. He banished death from us and made us anew and invisible and imperceptible as in himself he is. He became visible through his works and revealed himself as the word of the father, the ruler and king of the whole creation. Now, Athanasius's works continue, but we will pause there. I do want to just share a disclaimer that, of course, as we read through his writings, especially through chapter 2, he touched on the Immaculate Conception, that is the Roman Catholic doctrine that Mary was without original sin and knew no sin throughout her life. Of course, we reject that teaching because it is extra-biblical. It is not found or taught in Scripture, and so we have no reason to maintain it today. In fact, it runs counter to what Scripture reveals. But having said that, as we look at what he has written, it is noteworthy that he addresses the condition of man, who, having fallen short of the glory of God as every man had done, we were dead in our sins, unable to earn our way back to the Father. Even though God had revealed himself in so many ways, yet men continued to rebel against him. But Jesus Christ has come and has made God the Father known. We know what God desires of us. We know what the Father is like because we can see 
who Jesus Christ is, what he has done, and the promises that yet await those who have responded in saving faith to his gospel message. But as we find what he has done and what he has come to reveal, we find that when we respond in saving faith to the gospel message, that we are made anew, that we are born again, and so we are clothed in the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. What a wonderful hope we have, a hope that came in light of the Incarnation. And so as followers of Jesus Christ, as we focus on the celebration of the Incarnation, of that occasion upon which the Word became flesh and dwelled among men, we celebrate Christmas. I do hope and pray that you have a Merry Christmas and that you enjoy this time with your family and friends and that this Christmas is a time when you spend in reflection on the Incarnation as Athanasius has challenged us to do through his example. I pray that you have a new year as well, as this is the last podcast of this year, 2023, and my next one will be in the first week of 2024. May the Lord bless you.